<laughs> Here comes Fred Astaire. This is... Uh, okay. You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we will be trying to talk about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. Simon's new kitchen, and it's Huge. rather noisier than... Yeah. All right. No curtains yet. Don't look. <clears throat> We're doing the top ten monsters as voted for by our listeners. So I'm covering it up so Lee can't see. Oh, hi, I'm JR. Hi, I'm Lee. And I'm Simon. And we've got lots of other stuff as well. Should we do an email first? Yeah, right. go for it. Dylan Reese wrote in, Dear Blue Box Bros. I feel I should put an accent on for that. You can try. Dear Blue Box no, Bros. No, don't. No, let's, let's not do that. Okay. <laughs> you didn't find that convincing? Just annoying. I just wanted to drop you a line to say how much I've been... No? No. Okay. To say no. how much I've been... Don't do a Jar Jar Binks, please. Oh, that wasn't Jar Jar Binks. That was South Central LA. Was it? Yeah. Well, that's mm, the... Okay. That's the way you post your post now, is it? Hey, I've seen uh, John Singleton's films. <laughs> that's enough then <laughs> okay just wanted to drop your line to say how much I've been enjoying I've been enjoying your recent podcasts <laughs> taking on the impossible girls was a particular joy hearing newer fans experiences is always great and it's fantastic the Doctor Who fandom is more diverse than ever these days mm. I remember going to Doctor Who conventions before 2005 and there wouldn't even be a need for a lady's toilet let alone an actual lady there I also wanted to weigh in on McGann's popularity in your recent Doctor's poll. I was one of the people who placed him in my top five, and I think it's because a lot of fans of his don't really see his era as the TV movie, but rather the Big Finish plays he started doing in the 2000s. Big Finish's main range was always a different Doctor for every month. When McGann came on board, those monthly releases, those monthly releases would stop in favour of a four-story McGann run, so the only Doctor Who on offer was McGann, the incumbent Doctor in his own little season. Comparatively, when you think of Colin Baker's era, you think of his unsuccessful two series with a footnote that he did turn it around with Big Finish. With McGann, the footnote is the TV movie. His era is his audios. Even now, his stories are released in box sets and always feel like Big Finish pushed the boat out for them over the other Doctor's stories. They are sprawling epics that feel like an ongoing series. Keep up the good work, Dylan. P.S. Please do a two-hour special where you say only nice things about Colin Baker's Doctor. <laughs> <clears throat> we could do that. What do you mean? We could. Well, yeah. <laughs> Feel free. I'll just me you, son. Right, we've got lots of other things to talk about. But let's do the monsters. We're going to do the top ten monsters as voted for by a tiny fraction of our listeners. How many? How many hours? How many years? How many podcasts have we done? How come we're only doing this now? I don't know. It never struck me to do this sort of thing before. <laughs> top ten is quite a new thing to us, isn't it? Really? 
Yeah, didn't we actually we, avo- se- we avoided it though, didn't we, for quite a bit? Well, we had the season polls. Yeah. Um, as we started to run out of seasons, we started to get lots of messages saying, "I really enjoy your poll episodes." So I thought I'd better come up with some new polls to do, and that's why. Because we started off always doing topics, didn't we? Mm. Mm. Well, the topic for this week is top ten monsters. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> before we go into the top ten, I'll mention a couple of things that that sort of turned up. Because not many people vote on these things. It's only on Facebook. There's only a few people. But um, the crinoids, a couple of people voted for the crinoids. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark... Gave us his top choice, the Nymon. That's Mark Cochran. Sometime of this podcast. Well done, Mark. That's brilliant. Um, When I put the poll out, I gave a list of monsters and said, look, you don't have to vote for ones that are on this list, but I can't see anything off this list not winning it or not being in the top ten. So um, I said, you're probably better off sticking to the things on this to sort of... So the votes... For the things yeah. that come out. Like when you do um, nominations and then when you do the actual shortlist. I gave what effectively was a shortlist. But, well, for example, three people, despite the fact that they weren't on the shortlist, voted for the Vashta Narada. Mm-hmm. So that, the Vashta Narada actually proved quite popular. They're going to be even more popular in the future, aren't they, with those the two Vashta Narada audios. audios coming out? Mm. That's right. Ah. Is it one, one with interesting on audio? One with Tom, is it? One with Colin? No, one with Paul McGann. <clears throat> yeah, one's Paul McGann. I can't think of the other no, one. I can't either. But that's going to be interesting because they're silent, aren't they? They're, they're just shadows. Yeah. So it's going to as yeah, an audio. They can be voices though, don't they? They can be. Mm. I think it works though if they're silent on audio because then you've only got people talking about them. Mm. And actually, the problem with silence in the library was. If you make all shadows potentially dangerous, you've got to be really careful how you light it. And let's be honest, if you go through that those two episodes with a fine tooth comb, it doesn't really work. Whereas on audio, mm. Haunted House, potentially filled with Vashta Narada, that could work really well. Yeah, it could do, especially if all the lights go out. Um, on the short list, but didn't make the top ten, the Draconians... Also got three votes, which ain't mm. bad for a monster that only I expected one more of them, actually. I, I see. Yeah. I think it all comes from that comment from John Pertwee, isn't it? He always yeah, loved yeah. them. I think they work really well. Mm. And actually, they're only slightly beaten by the Ice Warriors. Oh, were they? Who ended up outside the top ten. Mm. And while five people had the Ice Warriors on their list, they only got two marks more than the Draconians, who only three people had on their list. So among the three people who voted for the Draconians, they voted them higher. Do you think that if um, like some missed episodes, lost episodes were found of the Ice Warriors, and then we did this poll, that it, they would climb up the charts? Is it, do you think we're that sort of uh, shallow as fans? The Ice Warriors? Yeah, and if, if, if there there's was not like much a, missing a of the Ice Warriors. Well, you know what I mean, if there's some kind of a boost, something to do, there was a cracking Ice Warriors episode last season, as opposed to the not quite so cracker one that we got. Well, we we've had through, thrown him up into. The we've things. had two Ice Warriors episodes in the last few years, haven't we? And neither. And this is this is the point, isn't it? We've had two Ice Warriors stories in the new series, and yet still the Draconians are breathing down their neck, even though they've only had one appearance once in 1973. Mm. 
The Ice Warriors, let's face it, just aren't much cop. The Draconians. Well, they were there, weren't they? Bang. Talk about world building. Oh, yeah, yeah. In, in short. In one go, in one line, in one, yeah. you know, in one scene. You knew who they were, what yeah. they stood for, what their background was. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> and they were beautifully realised. Personality, character. Uh, Whereas the Ice Warriors, they're like a turtle or a cross between a turtle and a alligator it's or something. It's all a bit wishy-washy, isn't it, that they lived on Mars and well, the point is, frozen and... They're like a turtle or an alligator or something, right? Yeah. What can you actually do with that? You can't. And everything you try to do with that just feels... I mean, the, mo- I think the most interesting... <laughs> There's a bit more to it than the fact that they look like a turtle. The most interesting... No, but that's the point I'm making. And sort of like a society. Well, that's the point I'm making. You can try and imprint that on top of the creature, but once you've designed the creature to look like a turtle, every time you do something like that, it doesn't it doesn't feel consistent no. with the design. Mm. It's And in the new series, they've had to go to great lengths to do something about those clamps for claws they've got. Because give them clamps for claws, and it's like, how is this creature ever going to push a button or hold a pen? If you can't... If you look at a creature and you can't imagine it doing any of the things that you're asking it to do in a story, it's not really going to work. And that's always, for me, been the issue with the Ice Warriors. Or you do something... You know, you have that design and you update it in a very clever way that makes sense, like the Daleks with their suckers. You know, when we well, first always had suckers, yeah, but, the, but what we saw the yeah. actual sucker do in the first Dalek episode, which you know, drain that person of its energy, suddenly the suckers weren't a joke anymore. You, you actually saw them doing something quite deadly. But the clampy hands of the ice warriors, you know, literally, uh, you know, they can't open a packet of sweets, they can't <laughs> open a door. Great for holding your cocoa, <laughs> <laughs> they have, of course, given them fingers now, haven't they? Yeah. But I say the most interesting thing about ice warriors is the fact that when they've returned like, in Peladon. And what have you that they, um, you know, it's like they switch sides. They, mm. they, that's probably the most interesting, but that's down to characterization. That's not down to the actual race itself. It's and, no different to the Silurians, as you said the other the other episode. Didn't you? <laughs> and you know, it, it it starts to feel like, and by the time Mark Gatiss is doing it as well, where he has the the first time he does it, where the Ice Warrior says at the end, "I'm going to destroy you all." I know the spaceships here. I'll just go. Mm. Move you to it. And then the second one, it's, we're going to destroy you all. Okay, then we'll just make friends, eh, shall we? And try and get along. It's, it becomes so contrived. And the Ice Warriors' entire history just feels like contrivance piled upon contrivance, really. Mm. None mm. of it feels like... I mean, in the first story, they were just abandoned and wanting to escape. So that there was no reason to think of them as the bad guys. Mm. But then in the second story, they just, you know one of these homogenous invading forces, as it were. And so... Lot, which is it, kind of, it stems from that legendary Troughton series, doesn't it? Basically, the monster season, I think. Hmm. And then the fact that they reappeared in Peladon, then this kind of perceived... Uh, what's the word? I don't know. Well, the, the Peladon hmm. made them, you know, a much more ambivalent, not ambivalent, so ambiguous kind mm. of race. So you never knew what they could be. In fact, I thought that was great because they were doing actually what the Draconians already did in one episode, which is give them a bit of a personality. Each one's individual, got their own thoughts, got their own actions and their 
you know, uh, modus operandi, all, all the things that they wanted to do um, personally, mm. you know, would come out in character. Mm. Whereas, of course, in the, the first couple... didn't come till afterwards. No. Yeah, so it's almost like a... Yeah. But with the Draconians, they created the race to be like that. Whereas with mm. the Ice Warriors, yeah. if, even though in the first story, in the, if you took the first Ice Warriors story and then extrapolated out, out of that, but that's not how it happened. They did the first Ice Warriors story, and then the second one was just a generic invasion mm. story. And then they had to backtrack and start saying, well, actually, we don't think of them as a generic invading race. Too late, damage is already done. So by this time, you're already swimming against the tide by saying, right, now we've got to sort of start um, compromising ourselves. So it's lacking that central idea, isn't it? The Daleks, you know, they're filled with hate. There's no no good in them whatsoever. <clears> so therefore, everything that isn't Dalek is is wrong. Cybermen, they just want to absorb everything and take the best from everything and make everyone the same as them. <clears throat> Ice warriors. Hmm. There isn't. Yeah. yeah, there isn't anything. There. Uh, the, as Joe says, them. stuff's been laid on them mm. since. Almost a bit like Klingon, really. I suppose mm. the same sort of honour thing and um yeah yeah because that wasn't there at the beginning was it no yeah yeah just adding extra little layers on right the ice warriors didn't even turn up in the top 10 so should we talk about the actual top yeah. 10 <laughs> i do like the ice warriors huh? i like i love that. their design i love what they've done with the new suits made them that bit more mobile which i think is quite a, and quite i think ben summerfield had a friend as an ice warrior and that really worked so I think, you know, that's that's what's needed if they do it again, a bit of a Paternoster gang ice warrior mm. uh, moment. But, yeah. <clears throat> we may touch upon things like that later on. In 10th place, the monster that actually came in the top 10 at the bottom was the Robots of Death. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you fondly remembered again. One appearance, but um, it was such a well-regarded story. Mm. I mean, even now, I mean, the story itself, this has been said by people who worked on it, the story itself ain't no great shakes. But the director, which was Michael E. Bryant, if I remember rightly, did such a great job of casting it. Oh, it's the design and, as well, though. I think that's, that is 50% of it, surely, is the design. Well, that would have been the other half of my sentence. Okay. <laughs> Would the other half of your sentence be, uh, it's also uh, another society that was brilliantly designed and kind of conceived? Well, that would have been during the first half of that sentence. <laughs> it's a long sentence. It, well, it did, the director took what was on the page, cast it so that the characters came to life and brought that society to life and then got the designer to come up with something that was... Um, Oh, I'm having terrible trouble with my words. They're kind of Art Deco, aren't they? Yeah, but what I mean is it, it fed through into all the aspects. So everything about that story... Most often when you've got a Doctor Who story, you know, somebody will design the costumes, somebody will design the spaceship, somebody will design the monsters, and the three things won't necessarily go together all that well. But in this particular story, everything just fits together so, so well. That even though... It's a there's a killer on the loose. We think it's the monster. No, it can't be the robots. Yes, it must be the robots. It's pretty dull story, a pretty dim plot, to be honest. And Chris Boucher's other two Doctor Who stories are leagues better in terms of 
imagination and concept and stuff. But Robots of Death just really, really works. And a lot of that is down to Michael E. Bryant and the way he fed fed those choices through to the entire team so that it added up and made something that actually for once felt like a real place. It's a clever base under siege from within, isn't it? Obviously based on the old Agatha Christie's, like you say. And, and iRobot as well, of course. And iRobot, which is exactly what I was going to say. That was the lovely combination, because actually some of the robot series, you know, they did have detectives in them. One of the detectives had a thing against robots and, you know, uh, people got this kind of psychosis being close to robots and, you know, that sort of thing. So all of that was weaved in. And if you hadn't read those books at that time, which I hadn't, and I've read them later, it's just an absolute genius piece of TV viewing. And as a kid, those robots, I mean, those were the ones that actually physically got me behind the door, looking through the gap, absolutely peer my pants. And I never forgot them, ever. Coming towards the screen with that injection, that'll mm, live with me mm, forever. Mm. More than the deadly assassin, in fact. It's what really works about people. them is the calmness of the voices. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's the that really thing, scary thing. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Absolutely. Hal, yeah, from uh, 2001. Uh, D84, of course, is the one that everybody always quotes and remembers. But they're all just equally as good as one another. And it's that, the sort of, it's what they call the uncanny valley effect, isn't it? Mm. Where something's mm. so close that it yeah. it feels human but it's just that little bit off so that it's uncanny and it's not quite as close as like the sort of plastic mannequins that you get today that almost look human or some of the stuff in cgi animations Hmm. where um i saw the latest resident evil animation the other day and if you took still photographs of it it just looks like pictures of people but once they get moving Hmm. it's it's uh it's, it's not the, quite the same. You know, the beauty of the design of the mask as well, and the fact that they are servile, and the wonderful kind of idea that every robot... It's impossible. You would never think a robot could do any harm. They're so used to the society of, of robots around and helping them all the time. Well, unless you've been watching Doctor Who, of course. <laughs> and then, you know, the, the moment where they said, oh, back on so-and-so, so apparently it tore someone's arm off, you know, whilst massaging them. And they're, they're kind of making jokes about the fact that robots could, to, could, could go wrong, but it's absolutely impossible. Of course it couldn't. But that was the whole thing I liked about it. It had a, almost a bit of a 2000 AD-ish kind of backstory to it as well Caldor City um, you know the audios that followed were really good I thought they were really fun and um, Paul Darrow played the main part played himself as Avon all the way through but who cares they're still good but the whole society was there and um, you know some of the characters from the original came back as well and it was just superb and you could put that on TV tomorrow and that was just from one episode just designing that society throwing it up on the TV screen for four weeks you know for kids to watch Mm, mm. brilliant I mean going back to the design that's something I always pick up on and um, I always think with Star Wars things like the Stormtrooper and the, mm. and the Darth Vader helmet and things like that you can stick them in a design museum and they're as valid as anything else and I think you could do that with these robots mm. just, that's it just beautiful we're really here to talk about why these things are on the list and where they are as opposed to reviewing the things and the robots of death are just exceptionally memorable mm. the story and the monster mm. And so they've come out, well, above the ice warriors who've been in six stories. You know, it's, mm. if, you, if you're in, there's Igons. Prior to them coming back into the series, they would still have been in the top ten. 
they've been in two two further stories now since. So, well, we'll find out where the Zygons are, but I don't think it's any surprise to know that they are in this top ten. <laughs> but you know what I mean? That was another classic design and a great story from mm-hmm. a well-remembered era of the programme. Mm-hmm. And these things just lodge in people's... I have to say, I'm, I didn't put these on the shortlist, but I was sorely tempted to. The Wirren, the, yeah. the uh, Kraals. Mm-hmm. Uh, Android Invasion is like the weakest story of the Philip Hinchcliffe. I still think it's a oh, but again, great the audios, bit of television, um, and the Kraals are a brilliant design, I think. I know, but they're brilliant. They're a brilliant creature. The the audios, the Tom Baker and yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the recent audios have been really good. Oh, I don't know much about those, but um, the Kraals never really had that um, background story. They were wearing armour that looked a bit samurai and, and that sort of and they looked like rhinoceroses. Mm. <laughs> um, but they were just great. They were well designed. It's the way they were characterised. Yes. They were arguing, the scientist and the... Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Chidaki and um, Stigron. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> um, yeah, they got a big finish, brought them back, gave them a two-part series finale. You know, who would have thought that of the uh, of the crawls? <clears throat> um, Yet to hear it, but I bet it's good. <clears throat> In ninth spot is The Silence. Mm-hmm. Which is, and I put that on the short list, thinking mostly they'd be ignored and nobody yeah. would really vote Let's for forget them. they were there. Well, yeah, but yeah, but I mean that was the thing of it. A lot of people said at the time, "Oh, this is just the Weeping Angels again." And of course, it, what they meant was this is another conceptual monster, because actually they're nothing really like the Weeping Angels at all. But I was surprised that they were. Somebody even put them in first place. One um, listener put them in first place. I was quite surprised because to look at them, okay, they've got a freaky head, but it's just a freaky head on a suit. And okay, they do some freaky stuff and they have this freaky concept around them. But you... could be enough though, couldn't it? I mean, if you think about the three elements you've just said. Oh yeah, no, I think it all works. But I think, but I don't know, just it struck me that in terms of Doctor Who monsters, the silence probably feel like a monster from another program. Yeah, yeah, mm. that's exactly mm. yeah. They're a bit more Sapphire and Steel meets the X-Files or mm-hmm. something. You think about that first that first scene where one of them blows up, the, or that woman in the bathroom. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty nasty. Oh, yeah, it's quite, it's spooky. Mm. And and I loved it when that happened. I thought, wow, this is, this is a creature that I've been waiting for. But... Um, I think the problem I had with them is why they're wearing suits in the first place. I still haven't worked that out. Because they're agents. Explained. Yeah. That's, that's my... Space agents. <laughs> well, because they are an invading force who aren't keeping themselves secret. Because in the story, in the story, we forget them when we're not looking at them and they're mm-hmm. nudging us along, but they're not l- nudging us along behind our back. They're coming into our lives and nudging us along and mm. then disappearing once they've done the nudging. Mm. So they wear the suits I think because that's of, what we wear. Kind of men in black thing as well, I think. I yeah, think I mean, that's probably the X-Files thing yeah, that yeah. kind of comes mm. in, into play. Oh, it's a design choice to reflect that, yeah. but it's one that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I don't mind. It's, just, it's still a great, great idea. And designed on the screen, of course, uh, that famous painting, mm. was a, just genius. I'm surprised... Well, actually, I'm not surprised that... Um, <laughs> Because the screen did it. <laughs> they took that mask and it became quite a um, famous horror image icon. But um, what I was surprised at is that they did do that and managed to get away with not replicating that mask. 
in any shape or form. So the, the silence were based on the scream, but obviously it's been made famous by another horror director. But they've managed to do something with that head and those fingers and that entire body that was terrifying. But just managed to be on mm. the right side of terrifying for kids, and, and uh, I think. Interestingly, I watched... Um... I had the pleasure of watching Miss Peregrine's School for Peculiar Children. Okay. The Tim Burton movie and the oh, creatures right. in that, the hollows. Very, very... Well, they, they immediately reminded me of the silence. The same kind of gangly thing mm. going on with the big heads. And... That's what people are doing with aliens these days, isn't it? Mm. The gangly thing. Like mm. the little creatures from Close Encounters, but made tall. The, the big spider one. That comes up behind them, isn't there? Because there's the little ones, isn't there? And then there's another one that's like a spider that comes up behind them. Oh, in Close Encounters? Yes. I can't remember. It's been a long time. Yeah, well, that's also a classic image, isn't it? Whitley Stryber made that quite famous in the book Communion um, about describing aliens' abductions from the 80s, which was a massive, brilliant update of the fairy lore. But, you know, well, that's it. The silence are based on the Area yeah. 51 thing, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. So that's plainly yeah, was, and that feeds into the whole setting in North America. Yeah, Nixon. So if you like your classic Alien, which a lot of people obviously do, if they're watching Doctor Who, that hits all the marks for them. I can see why that's. In the well, yeah, the classic oh, yeah, Alien is regarded as the little green man, but of course, Area Fifty One is the tall, gangly silver man. Yeah, mm. of course, the other thing is the mentors in um, Harry Potter yeah. movies, the face and the mouth, mm. very similar. But I don't know which one came first, Harry um, Potter. Yeah. Well, the last Harry Potter movie was the year Stephen Moffat took over Doctor Who, I think. Oh, yeah. If you want to measure it like that. I think. I can't remember. No, I... Yeah. Mm. But well, you know, I mean, it. also, you know, it crosses over because it's also a classic ghoul face, isn't it? Mm. Of the, the kind of the jaw the mouth, over, yeah. Jacob Marley and all that. So it's, it's yeah. I mean, it's just a very clever design. I mean, I'd like to see how um, Stephen Moffat was writing out on the page, you know. Did he actually say, I want you to make this alien look like the screen? Uh, yeah, he probably did. Stephen Moffat's yeah. um, stage directions and his scripts are usually pretty on the nose. He'll even put in stage directions for camera edits oh, and stuff. Okay. I think Toby Whitehouse does the same. You hear interviews with the directors and they'll be getting praise off the interviewer saying you did a really great edit there or you did a really great jump shot there or you did a really great move with the camera there. And they'll say, yeah, it was in Toby's script or it was in Stephen's script. It wasn't my inspiration that did it. Mm. Which is not to say that they don't bring their own inspiration as well, but something like what this monster looked like would certainly be in the script. Mm. Um, Eighth which is probably slightly lower than I would have personally thought they deserved, but then actually might be about right, given the entire history. Eighth is the Silurians and the Sea Devils. In other words, the Eocenes, or the... What are the other ones that come up with the fallen there? <laughs> sea Devils, isn't it? <laughs> That's... No, I mean, there was another... Homo, Reptilius, and all this kind of stuff. Mm. Okay. In other words, I've lumped the sea devils in with the Silurians because they're all essentially bits of the same creature. Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe that... It depends on what's coming up next, really. I mean, it's difficult for me to know. Well, I'm hiding Because you're hiding now. it all. But um, I would say that's probably about the right place if I'm thinking of what's coming up next. You know, the, the, the next seven are going to be pretty biggies. But 
I don't know. It maybe yeah. Six. Well, Sai Lung is a kind of a biggie because they've yeah. had three stories in two in the seventies and one in the new series where they've been the antagonists, yeah. and of course we've had a Silurian as a protagonist since then. I probably would have put them in my top six or seven. Thereabouts, I can't remember where I put it. I they'd have been in my top five. Really, I I'd hate to call them. Or they'd have been around about there. Yeah, they use the words dull or boring. But I just, I don't really latch on to... I think the stories are better than the species. Yeah, probably so. I, oh, pardon me. So but, I don't know what you... I suppose you, 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 you're voting for the whole package anyway, aren't you? So There is the classic side of it, isn't it? Depending on who's voted here. You've mm. got... I mean, they, they straddle both modern and classic series. But I think the, more, the classic series had a had had better... There were better monsters. They were more. It's more interesting setting, scene, whatever background, and obviously their introduction to Doctor Who world is brilliant story. I don't know, you but know, I don't because know if you look called... at The Hungry Earth, yeah, I think the kids who watch that when they were like six, seven, eight will think of that the same way as we thought of the Silurians by I the time they're. I think that was the intention, wasn't it? Yeah, um, because that's quite a you know it's a spooky, isolated mm. setting, mm. and then you've got the. Stuff like night in daytime and people getting sucked into the earth, yeah. like as in front of us. I thought the first episode was great. That <laughs> the things about these aliens is, you know, when you've got kids come to it, the first thing the kids look at is right. These are aliens. How are they different from us? And I think in that first story, they are very different from us. From us, but you know, as time has gone on, they just kind of feel maybe yeah, a step as in a away. design. Ma- yeah, maybe that, and maybe. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't yeah. know. I mean, I suppose well, the idea is that they are us, but just as yeah. reptiles, mm. and then we've come along and replaced them as mammals. But basically, we replaced them like for like. But for that's that. where I say the potency comes from the story, as opposed to the species themselves. Yeah, but I <clears> think, <throat> and perhaps this feeds into both of the other ones we've talked about as well: the silence and the robots of death. Mm. I think there's a case for the closer they are to being like us. The spookier they are, spookier yeah, they are, yeah. the scarier they are. I mean, the <coughs> obvious exception is going to be the Daleks, right? Mm-hmm. But I mean, apart from that, most of the other ones that we're going to be talking about, I mean, I don't want to say what order they're in, but it doesn't take a genius to work out. We're going to be talking about Sontarans, which are basically just like humans, but with potato-shaped heads. We're going to be talking about Saigons, which obviously look completely different, except they look like us as fetuses. Mm. But they change into humans because they're shapeshifters. The Autons, which are plastic humans. The Cybermen, which are metal humans. The Weeping Angels, which are stone humans. You know what I'm saying? There's a theme developing here. The yeah. further, apart from the obvious <coughs> one, and it's the only one that's ever really got it right, being the Daleks, apart from that, all the other monsters really are, they are like us, but with a twist. Yeah. And the twist here is they're reptiles. Mm. I mean, the, the the difference, obviously, being obviously, is that the modern ones look more like us because the design is basically, you know, having the yeah. prosthetics put on the face and, you, and they can move their face around like the Draconians. In fact, they look more like the Draconians than they, they do the Solarians original. Mm. And I love the original Solarians, but there is that. <laughs> there was always that moment of where one of them was going, "I'm getting, I'm getting really annoyed here," and his head would wobble mm. quite a lot, and you'd think, uh, "You get the eyes can't was glowing quite and all get that stuff. away from that." Uh, slightly but that's the freaky head. stuff isn't it and that's what I mean that's kind of yeah. what I mean is that things are slightly different I mean the brilliant thing about um, The Hungry Earth was uh, 
you know, the fact that they were going to quite happily cut cut up some humans to investigate, you know, and that immediately separates the species, you know, and they're not behaving like us. Slightly different. But dinosaurs isn't, isn't on a spaceship, that, you know, the fact they've got dinosaurs. That's probably my favourite Silurian story, mm. <laughs> ironically, you know, I, because it's yeah. just like, oh, yeah, of course, of course they were there at the same time as the dinosaurs. So mm. the whole reptile thing hasn't really been, apart from in, you know, New Adventures, Jim Mortimer stuff, mm. it's not really been explored in the same way. No. But the dissecting thing—that mm. is what we do to lizards. Yeah, and that, I thought yeah. that was the mirror. Yeah. That was the kind of point of it, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Mm. And that feeds again into that thing because I mean, it's obvious monsters are always going to be a man in a suit. But as it turns out, the more they try and disguise that, the less successful they probably are, and the more they just say, "Okay, let's make a virtue of that mm. by making something that basically is a man but just slightly different." or a man in a suit, like a Cyberman, mm. the more successful they are. Exactly. So the jail guards, if they had two arms, two legs, and a big blob in their face and a little claw gun, they'd look much better, wouldn't they? I love the jail guards. <laughs> but they are ridiculous. But you know what I mean about... <laughs> the Cybermen, literally a man in metal suits. Yeah, we yeah. all know, we're only at number eight, but we all know they're going to be in the top two or three, right? Yeah, so it is necessity. All these monsters are, you know, are kind of human-shaped, aren't they? But it's interesting to note that the ones that are the most popular, oddly, are human-shaped apart from one. And we'll find out whether that came top or not in about half an hour. But in seventh place, oh, this one is the odd one out, or sort of the odd one out, and the Yeti. <laughs> Wow. Or Yeti stroke great intelligence. It's an thing, isn't it? Yeah, but you said stroke great intelligence. Uh, that's because several people... I put down Yeti because I was going to do another one for villains and yeah. the great intelligence mm. was going to be in villains, but I didn't say that. So a lot of people who voted voted for Yeti stroke great intelligence. Okay. But I think they were mostly ignoring the great intelligence in the modern series and just thinking about... The Yeti. And they're probably just thinking about the web of fear. <laughs> <laughs> or a lot, a lot of it probably was. Well, fair enough. I mean, I, I'm I'm always I've always been baffled by this one because the Yeti. I love the Yeti. I have no idea why, because they're pretty shocking, aren't they? When you look at them, the whole orb thing. Though. The what's <clears throat> in the original story? The the whole orb thing. The orbs rolling around and then mm-hmm. becoming part of the Yeti. That whole thing. That whole dynamic. Mm. It's the mod- modus operandum. Is that is that the word? Modus operandi. Operandi. Yeah. There you go. But I know you're right. It's those quirks. Yeah. I mean, the fact is that they're hollow shells. And yeah. They're inactive until the metal balls go in them and the great intelligence controls them, mm. which is uh, a really great idea. Um, but it's. <laughs> but it, I've never kind of worked out what the great intelligence is, even in that I still can't get my head around it. It just doesn't doesn't do anything for me. I don't it's really a bit get like it. a nesting consciousness, isn't yes, it? Yes. And the Mandragora Helix. Mm. Yeah. And, yeah. Invisible Force is a bit, bit of a cop-out, but I really like the, the Yeti themselves. It's one of those sci-fi ideas, though. It's a bit like having the planet as the living thing in um, Planet mm. of Evil or the mm. sun as the living mm. thing in 42. There's always sci-fi stories about the cloud being the living thing. You know, it's something that turns up in, I'm sure, Star Trek and Space 1999. Oh, yeah. You know, where they, the Enterprise flies into a cloud and all of a sudden the mm. cloud's haunting the spaceship and that kind of yeah. stuff. 
It's one of those things. And yeah, the, the thing about the Yeti is, okay, it's a story about a, a cloud that haunts things or whatever, animates things. But really, when it comes down to it, it's about a cuddly telly teddy bear with spooky eyes and a ray gun that shoots webs. It's <laughs> yeah, it's like we've said before on the podcast, you know, fair enough in Tibet, it makes sense for them to have Yeti walking around. In London, to with a, a degree, web gun, doesn't <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make any sense for them to reuse. Well, yeah, we, we had them sitting in the cupboard. We'll just use them again yeah. in London. Yet, how good is that? <laughs> oh yeah, no, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just brilliant. Yeah, the it? juxtaposition of the two is fantastic. Well, the yeah, abominable snowman doesn't make that much. Why do they need to be animated by the orbs? They've made these robots, and then they make the animating sphere a separate thing. Why is the animating sphere not just part of the robot? Hmm, there's something modern there, isn't there? I'm sure there's something we do in the modern day and age. Sims. There you go. <laughs> yeah, but we only invented <laughs> Sims afterwards. But you know what I mean? But if you were just... But the reason you have Sims and mobile phones is because you upgrade your mobile phones. Oh, yeah, there you are, yeah. You don't upgrade... Well, they do kind of upgrade the Yeti. They redesign them, but... Yeah. But they're not. They're creating the Yeti to invade. Mm. I mean, where did, where did they create the Yeti? Is there a factory somewhere in 1930s Tibet where they're making robot monsters? We could, do that. We could do that with anything <laughs> on this list. <laughs> oh, we could. But what I'm saying is the reason the Yeti are here is because this... Obviously, people aren't entirely forgetting the other one, but it's because mm. this one particular story is so well thought of and has just recently turned up. But if you actually look at the creatures, what? this is the vote for the mad one. So what, mm. what was the point, can you just remind me, of the Abominable Snowman story? What, what was the actual point of that story? What was the great intelligence actually trying to achieve? Can gonna, anybody remember? He's going to take over the Earth, I'm assuming. Mm. With what? His balls. With his... <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> What's the next one? Like you say, <laughs> like you say, there's that human connection again. <laughs> right, we're moving on. Six. Probably about right, maybe. Sontarans. Sontarans are the popular... They are the popular returning monster without the quirk that defines them. I love the Sontarans. I think they should be up there, right in the, uh, in no. the top of the charts. Hang You're on, looking I've, at me with that... Hang on, I've got the telly. Bloodshot eye again. <laughs> that singular bloodshot eye. <laughs> They're no. brilliant. Absolutely no, my brilliant. issue... My issue recently, yes, and I don't usually have issues with Stephen Moffat's writing, is the decision to make them objects of humour. Make one of them objects of humour. No, no, more than one. I mean, even in Name oh, the Doctor. very Name short Do- scene. Sorry, Time, Time of the, the Doctor. doctor yeah. The, there's the, yeah, the two of them come up and they both come out as bumbling mm. kind of <clears throat> That's jokes. a 20-second scene, though. I get, get your point though get your point but do you know what it, it does work it does but work also no, got don't a Silurian. Get me wrong. it does work you've also got a Silurian who's um, a, a lady Silurian walking around in Victorian London lesbian lover and is a detective like Sherlock Holmes I mean yeah, yeah but what you're forgetting is crazy stuff in the works. Time Warrior the Sontara is an object of humour his very first yeah. scene it lands on the planet Earth and yeah. it sends up a flag to say, I'm claiming this planet for the great Sontaran Empire. Okay, we'll put it this way then. It's the threat level. Because he's a threat, certainly. And certainly it's Sontaran experiment, I suppose. But that's where probably where I'm getting most of my Sontaran things from is is that. They're quite Sontaran experiment. Bloody nasty. The bit at the end where the Doctor defeats one of them 
and gets on the radio to an entire fleet of them and says, Yabu sucks, and they all turn around and say, oh, <laughs> okay. God, there's a man there. We'd better turn tail and disappear. Yeah, okay. Still- and then you've got the comedy Cockney Santarans in The Invasion of Time, and then you've got the comedy six-foot-six tall Santarans whose <laughs> suits don't fit in the two, uh, the two Doctors. Yeah, okay. The Santarans, they're a great design. Mm. The actor who played the first two was a great actor, Kevin Lindsay, and he really made something really distinctive out of it. And the the whole thing about, you know, he wrote that first cliffhanger, Robert Holmes, in the, the um, Time Warrior, where it takes its helmet off, and the head inside the helmet is the same shape as the helmet. But, unlike the Autons, animated plastic, Cybermen, humans turned into robots, Daleks, mutated lumps of hate inside disability tanks, uh, the Silence, you forget them when you can't see them, the Zygons, the Shapeshifters, the Yeti, the stupid mad things, the quirky ones, the Sontarans, what can you say about the Sontarans? They're warlike. What monsters who invade all the time aren't warlike? That's not a distinctive enough thing to define them. I think I they're mean, clones, but well, I mean, yeah, they're clones and they're bred but for aren't war. The and Cybermen clones, effectively, by the time they've all been turned into generic robot monsters, aren't the Daleks effectively clones by no, the time it's they've the all process, been processed? Isn't it of how they get there? Isn't it? I mean, the Santorans are bred that way. You know, what I mean is that's not. That's not a distinctive enough defining characteristic of the species, the fact that they're clones. We That's a thing. Had, we've had no real origin story for the Sontarans either, so we don't really know why they're fighting the Rutans, what's going on with them, and there's there's a lot to explore. They've got a lot of interesting backstory, which is just because each writer has decided to embellish or add a little extra to its legend, but they haven't really looked at the past and gone, oh, I'm actually going to follow that completely. They're just tacking on stuff um, and then you get to the modern day and it's like well what have we got okay we've got them they're warlike they're this they're that and the other and they've got a probic vent and, and they've got a probic vent for comedy really more than anything else but because you know if you're that clever you'd block it up actually well, their reason for having that was so they can always face the enemy mm. um, but that, that sounds like that came after the issue of having it but the these are all net. just little these things are, these, these are, are all just little features things. none of these are a defining characteristic in the way they're warlike and they're clones and you know they're in the new series they're really tiny which annoyed me so much until but i saw some time just there is the fact that that's a good idea actually they'll happily die in order to win a battle mm. yeah but you could say that about the cybermen and the daleks and you could say that about samurai Warriors as well. There's know, nothing about the Sontarans. Well. Don't get me wrong, I love the Sontarans mm. and they were in my top five. Mm. But the reason that they haven't come higher in the top five is because there's nothing to define them in the same way the Cybermen and the Daleks are defined. Mm. Mm. I get what you mean by making <laughs> a race that is warlike and, you know, should be powerful and warlike, a, a, a feature of a joke. Mm. You know, small man syndrome and all that sort of stuff. It's if you were to take something that's got such noble uh, pride, say like the samurai warrior that's not afraid to die, or the Vikings, and you made them an object of of of, of a joke, it's, mm. it does diminish that entire race. I mean, I don't think the Sontaran stratagem really helped because you thought, well, these are warlike beings, and why are they doing all this business with 
with the things Smoke going, and going yeah, stuff to go in cars and things. You know, and you just think, well, why are they? But just actually, down? I thought that was quite a clever idea. What they're using? You is see, it's not a clever idea. I'm just saying, does it suit the Sontarans? It doesn't suit the Sontarans, yeah. But they're strategic. They're not just warlike. Well, no, they're not really. We've never really seen that side of them before. Oh, I thought they often mentioned the word strategy. Mm. I don't know if they really do. One of them You've got to have a leader, don't you? I mean, it's like Napoleon, and Napoleon or whoever is in charge is the clever one who makes all of the right. We're doing this, this, and this, and then the all, whole the, point all the is they dominate by force. Yeah, but they're not idiots, are they? Complete idiots. Otherwise, they wouldn't be where they are. Well, well it's just the, look it's at Sontaran's <laughs> strategy, and it's pretty idiotic because they could have easily done it another way and been successful. With some genius kid. I mean, why? Why not? Well, they've never done anything remotely like that before. Why did they start suddenly making clones of people? They've never done anything remotely oh, like that. Before. No, that was weird. Sontaran's strategy was it. It was like they came up with an idea for a story and said, right, we better throw a monster in here. We've not had the Sontarans. Let's mm. chuck them with Sontarans. Mm. I like it. I particularly like the way it's directed. I think um, Douglas McKinnon, who did that, made a really good job of what he was given. Apart from the lighting. Sorry, Douglas. Well, that's not him. Okay. Um, but, I, I, um, I take it back. <laughs> but, the, but the fact that it's the Sontarans in that story is the bit that makes the least sense. Yeah. But I don't know. Oh, I thought they were great in that, you know. When, well, when, nice. when they're, oh, when they're hunting down the, the unit soldiers, that's a really brilliant bit of TV. Like these aliens around going, this is like killing weasels. You know, this is, this mm. is, this is war. This is sport. Mm. That was a great line. Some yes, great, so great why segment. is the rest of the 245 minute episodes not like that? <laughs> I don't why know. is it? Why is it? Okay. In a, way, not, you, in a way, you needed somebody to manipulate them to be doing well, we're this. Talk, I've like said we're not here to review it. the stories, but to say no, about why they came up. Mm. I mean, mm. why, why, why do they bring Martha back only to instantly clone her for almost the entire two episodes? It's like, oh, let's get the actress back, but let's not worry about the character. That was just one of the weirdest decisions. Mm. Mm-hmm. And then they take her off to... Doctor's daughter, only to entirely separate her from the doc from the doctor for the entire forty-five minutes. Anyway, so with a half in the top ten. <laughs> no. I like, do you know about that episode? I really like the half. It was quite an interesting idea. Well, no, they weren't. <laughs> <laughs> well, fish walking around with its own fish tank. It, it was, was quite the best thing in that thing. <clears throat> In fifth place. Oh, this is surprisingly low, I suppose, because this one is one that has, of late, been coming in the top two or three, if not winning these sorts of polls. In fifth place, it's the Weeping Angels. Wow. It is a classic. It's a modern classic. I'm not going to argue. Again, there's nothing I can say that would, would make these any less place. I think they deserve being up there. They are brilliant. They're superb creatures. Lee, I'm asking why they're down from three, not why oh, they're well, wait, five. Oh, do you know why? Down because they've three. been watered down. That's my, my that's my gut feeling. Um, no, I've got another answer, but Go we'll get then. into it. But I, your point is that first appearance in that first story, they were so well defined, mm. and every time they've come afterwards, they've been less well defined because they've had to expand on the concepts yeah. in order to fit them into other stories. Mm. And yeah, that's a fair point. And yeah, I didn't really like what they did with them in the 
the first time they came back. Mm. I thought they redressed it a bit the second time. But yes, even definitely, so. definitely. But then, since then, about three or four times they've turned up in stories just for a single cameo appearance. And then the whole spoilerific thing. Sorry? The whole, can I mention where they turned up again? You are about Most it. recently. Are they coming at Christmas? No. Oh, I talking about? well, I was in, yeah. Yeah. Oh, sure. class. Yes. Yeah. That was only a year ago, Simon. Okay, yeah, well, do we just assume that people have seen it? Yeah, the whole class thing as well, then. Well, that, if there had been a second series of class, that might have actually made mm. something of the Weeping Angels to justify it. I mean, the Weeping Angels are sort of justified in the same way as the Robots of Death, the Draconians and the Zygons up until the point at which they did return would have been in a top ten of this kind because it was, you know, a confluence of great monster, great concept, great story. But I think the reason why they're not higher than fifth now that there's time to reflect on those things, because it is ten years now since Blink, <laughs> But the reason they're not any higher is because it's such a high concept thing that unlike, say, the Zygons or the Draconians, you can't imagine them as a race or a species. They're a concept in the story. Mm. And they're given great sort of physical form in the form of these statues that move when you're not looking. But the concept that they feed off the energy of, you know, feed off the energy that you leave behind if you go and live somewhere else. That's ridiculous. I've said this before. It's it's my whole Donnie Darko thing is that the the Donnie Darko director's cut that explains everything. That original film, because it wasn't explained, that was where it was potent Mm, because it left you to make your own mind up and things weren't explained. You just kind of went for the ride and it feels like with the, the angels, you try to explain them and they lose... I don't know if they've tried to explain them, though. Well, no, my fear is that the the more they add to them, the the more there'll be a tendency to try and explain why they behave like they do. And I don't think you need to keep explaining. I think the the fact is, it's like we've been talking about today, that if the story's good enough, Mm. um, you you know, you build them, you just use them, their original concept, but you build a really great story around it. There was a good graphic novel, actually, called The Weeping Angels of Mons, or The Angels of Mons, set in um, in the war, with David Tennant. And it was it was quite affecting, actually. And you, you're left with a poignant kind of taste in your mouth because it's all about the war anyway, and the, you know, poppies and things at the end of it. But there they are. Uh, the Weeping Angels are part of that, that storyline. And they're not... You're not trying to find out whether the Weeping Angels, where they came from, where, how they move, if they're going to talk to you, that sort of thing. It wasn't about that. It was about the characters and then well, these things it. affecting them. And it was really I well mean, done. That would have made a that great TV episode. What I'm saying there, Lee, is that the reason the Weeping Angels aren't higher is because Blink isn't about the Weeping Angels. Whereas mm-hmm. Terror of the Zygons is about the Zygons. Mm-hmm. Whereas Frontier in Space is, insofar as it can be, given the kind of story it is, about the Draconians. And um, well, the Robots of Death is about the robots. But Blink is not about the Weeping Angels. It has the Weeping Angels in it. And they're there to facilitate a time travel plot. In fact, so much is it not about the Weeping Angels. The original version of that story doesn't even have the Weeping Angels in it. He's just put them in to facilitate the time travel. So as a species, yeah, they look great. The statues, right? There's not really a lot more to say than that. Uh, They're not, it's not like you can look at the Weeping Angels and say that's brilliant alien design. It's a statue. 
It's not like you could look at the Weeping Angels and say, God, I can really understand how that society functions. I really get a, you know, this story has given me a, a real insight into what life in outer space and other species on a different kind of planet might be like, because they're just a concept. So you look at the Weeping Angels and yes, it's a brilliant concept. And yes, the idea of it being statues that move is sort of iconographic or whatever you want mm. to call it. But you stick them next to the Daleks, the Cybermen, whatever, even next to the Sontarans. And for all that we've just said about the Sontarans, I can believe in the Sontarans more than I believe in the Weeping Angels. Mm. And the Weeping Angels also, and the silence is the only one possibly even begins to mitigate against this, the Weeping Angels are the absolute proof positive that in 12, 13 years now of the new series, the people who've been writing it have not been able to come up with something like the Daleks or the Cybermen that goes down in the public consciousness. The Weeping Angels are the only one. And the reason is because they're statues that move, not because they're a really great alien mm. concept, but just because of that conceit of them being the statues that move. Mm. Mm. They're... They're, I love the new series, and I think the stories and the characterizations and the motivations and all these things have a depth way far beyond anything the classic series came up with. But that has possibly been at the expense of coming up with races of monsters, because we no longer have generic Earth invasion plots. And Sontaran's mm. strategy was a great example of that. Instead of a generic Earth invasion, it's got all this crap around the outside of it trying to make it be mm. something more than what it really wants to be so it's saying something about uh, sat navs instead of having monsters invading the earth and really what can you say about sat navs they get you from A to B mm. should we well they don't actually then <laughs> <laughs> should we find out who came forth find out. okay can you see it from there do you want to say it it is the Zygons, JR. I think there's a good chance they'd have come forth even if they hadn't been in the new series. Mm. So, yeah, agreed. I think the Day of the Doctor... I like the way the Day of the Doctor uses them. I mean, the reason they're in the Day of the Doctor was because David Tennant always said he wanted the Zygons and Russell T. Davis never did it for him. So Stephen Moffat said, OK, I'll do it for you instead. Because he needed something in that part of the story to foreshadow how the Dalek plot in that story was going to end. So the Zygons really are there as a kind of throwaway in Day of the Doctor. That's right, yeah. They're not really very significant, other than that they foreshadow how it's going to finish. And they have turned them to a bit of a comedy monster in that story. It's all a bit of a runner. Is this rabbit a Zygon? Okay, here's two queens. Which one of you is the Zygon? And all this kind of stuff. But still, it doesn't... It's not It's not a middle finger up to their first appearance, which, of course, is an absolute classic. And then they come back in the Zygon Invasion, the Zygon Inversion. And what they've done there is... And they've done this after the fact. So it's not like they did this before the fact and then shoehorned the Zygons in. But in the Zygon Invasion, they've taken the Zygons and they've said, right... Terror of the Zygons is a great story, but actually it doesn't add up to a lick of sense. The plot is just a generic, pulpy sci-fi runaround, and it doesn't add up to meaning anything, and it doesn't even make any sense. 
So let's take the Zygons, which which the first time they were used didn't make any sense, which the second time they were used were just thrown away in a plot for really another monster. Zygon Invasion says, okay, let's take the Zygons, let's take what we know of them, let's come up with a a plot in which the Zygons are actually central to the story as opposed to mm. just the generic monster of the week or in the story, and let's extrapolate something out of that. And I think it does so almost at the expense of the Zygons, because I think by the time you get to the end of the Zygon inversion, you've pretty much forgot that it's about Zygons, and really it's about humans fighting humans. So even the one time where they make something that is kind of intrinsic to the Zygons, you forget that it's the Zygons that it's about. Mm. But that first story is such great fun and the most recent story is one of those ones that people never forget after Mm. they've seen it that speech at the end and the whole thing I think it's one of those ones that's got some great moments it's like a real good old fashioned Doctor Who where it moves from one place to another and has one memorable scene after another I I think the Zygons in spite of everything I've just said have been unbelievably well served for really what is a pretty slender concept They've been well served by enjoyable stories and a great design. You'd think there'd be more shape changes in Doctor Who, wouldn't you? A lot more. There have been a few down the years, but the Zygons is the one that everybody remembers. Because mm. that's the one where they just did it the best. Which, if you remember, the Autons came in as shapeshifters. Mm. I never liked the design of the of the new Zygons, though. Um, I did find them like, you know, like the sometimes... realistic. No, just ridiculous. The face in the middle just looked almost boss-eyed and a bit ridiculous. Um, whereas the original ones, even though there were lots of mistakes and you know prosthetics weren't quite right, and you could even see the kind of, uh, I think it was a voice-changing thing in the neck or whatever, I don't know. But you could see all these things. It didn't matter. It, it, microphone, it's called, though. Was it just a microphone? It wasn't a yeah, voice changer. Yeah, it was just a little, yeah. Just a microphone, and then mm-hmm. he changed voice after. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, so it was like, yeah, these guys are really scary. They're really weird, and it's a beautiful design, and the whole shape of the head was right. But the new one, when they first revealed that picture, in bright, you know, it, was, it wasn't in any kind of um, special lighting. It was just standing there, you know, kind of growling at the out of the, out of the picture. I laughed and went, "What's that? Is that a joke? Is that a joke one?" <laughs> That's not the thing, is it? I don't think they're that bad. The thing I don't like them is that you can tell what they're made of. I think the new Ice Warriors suffer from the same problem. Mm. I think it's what they managed to get away with, with the Silurians in their return story. But I think Madame Vastra's head's been redesigned to be made of the same stuff. I don't know what it is, but it's the stuff they make monsters out of these days. Mm. And I think it makes them all look the same. But I think it was better. They were better in the inversion stories. They were they were cleverly lit, better lit, far away shots. Uh, you know the wonderful thing about the terrorists. You know where they send the video, and you can just about see them through the. You know we've got to do this. And that all of that all of that was fantastic. But I almost do feel like it was hiding, hiding their ultra ridiculous kind of faces. Whereas in the uh, Day of the Doctor, it was, yeah, the joke. It was compounded by their look. Well, they've made them angry. Yeah, which doesn't work. You just have to make them... You don't like, need to make them angry, because no. look at what they look like anyway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Don't make them angry. But, I mean, apart from that... Psychos are people too. 
Apart from that, it's mostly pretty um, um, what, sympathetic to the original design. Yeah. They're slightly less rounded like a fetus. Because mm. they, they've turned them more into man in suit. But, but still great. Mm. Should we move on to the top three? Mm. Okay. In number third spot. Do you want to take a guess? Cyberman. Autons. Ah. Mm. Here's the Autons. Oh, yeah, bugger. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I wouldn't have been surprised if the Autons had overtaken the Cybermen. But... Really? Mm. Oh, no. I Cybermen and the Daleks. I don't think there's anything to touch them. Mm. The Autons are my favourites. Although, between the first story and the second story, and then their appearances in the new series, there's hardly any consistency whatsoever. Mm. But the I I just think it's a genius idea, mm. and it's such an obvious idea. Mm. But I think it's a better idea than the Cybermen or the Daleks. The idea of a creature that animates plastic—it doesn't have to. Be, it's the great intelligence done right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it wouldn't even have to be plastic. It could be if you'd come up with an intelligence that animates metal and done the same yeah, story right. with metal things or one that animates wood and done the same story with wooden things, mm. it would still have worked, but obviously plastic's more malleable. So with yeah. plastic, it works even better. And that was the talk of the time, wasn't it? Plastic was the new thing. Mm. Um, and what a danger it could be. But it gives you so much flexibility with what to do with them. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, good on me. <laughs> but also, they had two very distinct designs between Spearhead from Space and Terror of the Autons. Yeah. And they're both just as terrifying as one another, mm. I think. That was brilliant. The terror, terror of the Autons, in order to bring back a waxwork dummy, you think, well, you can't do that again. What should we do? I know, let's make him into really happy, funfair-looking geezers <laughs> mm. giving out deadly daffodils. Just brilliant. And then bring the master in. That's that little extra element. Mm. Yeah. And it, I think it did need that. It needed that um, person, that go-between... Uh, somebody who is going to be on Earth, a bit like our Rattigan kid for the Desontarans. Um mm. The master was doing that very same job for the uh, nesting consciousness. But you know, we talk. We're talking Autons as in the dummies, as opposed to the consciousness. Oh, the whole itself. thing, really, because they're two different creatures, aren't they? Really. Well, we're talking about what the nesting consciousness does with them, yeah. as opposed to the nesting consciousness, I guess. Because again. A well, again, well, the nesting consciousness, again, is a big cloud of floating intelligence, really, isn't it? <laughs> or a, a sort of formless floating intelligence type thing. It's irrelevant, really. It's at least with the nesting consciousness, right? Unlike, say, with the Cybermen, with the Ice Warriors, at least you've got a controlling force. So you've got something that has motivations and makes decisions. Whereas, you know, we'll talk about the Cybermen in a minute, but the Cybermen happen by accident. And although that's a terrifying concept, that absolutely ruins any idea of a sequel because if your monsters happen by accident, how are you then going to turn it into a motivated species? Because hmm. it's not a spe- you know, it's not a species with a motivation to do something as a species. It's so the Cyberman story is always just. The Cybermen must survive and proliferate. Well, okay, how does that make them any different from us? Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, that's maybe the point. But with the Autons, you've actually got, you know, a, an intelligence that is a motivating force and uh, has a design. And so all the things that happen in the first two Auton stories, there's a kind of consistency of action mm. Mm. and a consistency of purpose. And even though the second one, well, they're both really just runarounds. They're so well done and so well played. You're a big Auton fan, Simon. Why? But it's, yeah, it's, it just shines. Just it's just character. And loads of character, and you've got things like telephone wires attacking people, and the daffodils. It's not just the daffodils. It's the fact they they spray that stuff over your face. It's horrible. Um, and the doll killer dolls. It's all stuff that's really you know. I mean, it's the whole thing of making something very domestic becoming very dangerous and. Take it back to the Santarans tragedy. In terror of the Autons, you've got a telephone flex that can wrap itself around your neck and strangle you. In Santaran strategy, you've got a sat nav that can tell you to drive into the river, and if you're too stupid, you'll do it. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's yeah, as opposed no to control, as opposed to controlling the car and, and driving you off into the. Even if lake, it did, what do you do? You break do. the window and climb out. Well, yeah, mm. you know, the autons control the plastic. They lock the door. They, you know, it's all kinds of things. That they but they don't do. need to because once that flex is wrapped around your neck, you're yeah, a that's true. <laughs> you know, once you're enmeshed in that big plastic chair, I think it speaks volumes that RCD brought. You know, the autons were the were the creature to come back with in that first story. I mean, I know it's not a huge part of that, but just little things. It's all visual stuff, like the yeah, the the, the dummy's arm coming alive and attacking them and things like that. Well, but, they're a statement of intent, just the same as they were mm-hmm. in Spearhead from Space, that says what you're about to see. Because, you know, outer space stories, lots of people just think, well, what does that have to do with my life? The Autons say, right, we're going to tell outer space stories that are relevant to your life. And so although obviously those stories are set on Earth, what they are is a statement of intent mm. about something that's close enough that you recognise it, but distant enough that it's doing things like wrapping telephone flexes relates, around your neck. It also relates to, a, I think it's known as a really terrible episode of the Tomorrow's Pe- Tomorrow People, isn't there? Is it Skin of Evil? Whether there's these suits that are made and they actually grow and attach themselves to the people wearing them. So you've got all the kids all choosing these amazing mm. like tracksuit things that look plasticky and they actually start grafting themselves to your body and taking you over. Which is a great yeah. idea. Yeah, which is the same sort of thing. And I think that's where it feeds into, feeds into that same kind of There's paranoia. a claustrophobia thing as well, mm. isn't it? They play on all kinds of things for the, the autons. Mm. But... Um, in the yeah, you, know, you said it really. I was just just about to say that the, the reason why Rose came about with the Autons plainly is that it gives you the chance to introduce all those characters on Earth. The Doctor being an all bloke walking about, he saving the Earth as you know people are just stumbling about on the planet, not really know what's going on. Mm. And that that was the fantastic thing seeing it from Rose's eyes. What could be mo- any more normal than working in a department store with dummies around you, and mm. then suddenly they start coming alive. I mean, you had the concept ready there, you know, 30 years before. So, mm. so yeah, could we use that one? It's the perfect way to introduce a character and an audience, a brand new modern audience who would probably sneer at Doctor Who mm. <clears throat> with, a, with a chav and a superstore or a department store. Well, this is what happened in 1970, really, isn't it? 
Doctor Who went away for six months. He'd never been off the screens before, really. Went away for six months and came back and appealed to a brand new audience because it was a brand new thing. Yeah. Shall we find out who came number two then out of the Cybermen and the Daleks? Cybermen. It's going to be Cybermen. Got to be in that. Yeah. I've got to tell you, though, it was bloody close. Uh, Ooh. You are. <clears throat> <laughs> uh, there were... There was never a point at which the Cybermen overtook the Daleks, but there were times when they were within, like, a point. And I was thinking, my God, are we going to get some kind of an upset here? Mm. The Cybermen, number two. (laughs) I think it's a ruined concept. I think it's a... I think it's... I think the original idea was for something that wasn't sustainable. Mm. And I think the way they've sustained it has gone against the original idea. Mm-hmm. So originally it's a story about the 10th planet. It's not, no, not even originally because not the 10th planet should be a story about humans choosing to replace themselves with robotic parts, mm. but it's not, it's a story in which a bunch of humans who already have replace themselves with robotic parts, turn up and are just already robots. Mm. And this is the, and this for me is the big shame about the Cybermen is that they've always just been robots and they walk around and say, you will be like us as much as you like. And yes, that's a scary enough concept, Mm. but you will be like us up until this year, series 10 with Stephen Moffat doing the whole Mondas Cybermen thing with Bill up until then, I don't think they've ever really paid more than lip service to the idea that there's actually people inside there. And I think, actually, Death in Heaven does it better. Mm-hmm. Where you get to see... Where they're reanimating corpses, and that's not proper Cybermen, it's just Missy's own personal army of Cybermen. But actually, I thought that brought some of the horror of it out. Mm-hmm. And I think closing time and showing them as these desperate band stealing people to convert them in the basement of a shop... I thought that actually said a bit about the Cybermen as well. Yeah, those types of Cybermen as well. Yeah, yeah. But you look at things like Attack of the Cybermen and really it's just Robocop porn, isn't it? It's like this man's <laughs> arms made of <laughs> this man's arms made out of steel. Yeah. So what are we saying about him? Well, nothing really, except I, he runs around hitting people. I will freely admit I've always loved them because I've always loved the idea, like you say, the original idea of where they came from. And that hasn't, as you say, it hasn't until it's recently never hasn't been, been addressed. on screen. Not no, even not in the tenth planet. Mm. People always say, oh, the Cybermen haven't been the same since the tenth planet. You know, we've not seen that idea mm. since the tenth planet. When did we see it in the 10th planet? They just turn up as robots and yeah, say, we used to be no, humans. You got, yeah, Age of Steel, haven't you? Which, you know. And again, in Age of Steel, you go 40 minutes with David Tennant finding out about earpieces yeah. and Bluetooth, and then the Cybermen just turn up at the end of that episode. Yeah, but even then, all they're, doing, all they're talking about is taking brains out and putting them into metal shells, which isn't what they are there is a certain zombification of them isn't yeah there? It's... but don't forget it's the silhouette as well I expect any uh, you know anybody who takes on the Cybermen any producer or whatever they must be thinking well what can I do different with these guys because like you say it's a bit of a ruined concept mm. you've got to put them in it's Doctor Who what are we going to do with them we can always use their silhouette it's the jug ears and all that that's fine let's just do something a bit different with them so as much as I disagree with the brain in the in the you know, playing in a big tin can walking around. It's just somebody's 
view. It's just somebody's idea or concept. It was never that original concept, but that's fine because it's a parallel world and you can do what you like with them, reinvent them, mm. give them flares and whatever, whatever. But by the time we, you know, we, we got to the last season and here we are, everybody kind of stamping their feet going, come on, make a, an origin story and make it like spare parts because we all love it so much. And he does it better than we would imagine, I think. It's just such a great, great idea, the whole concept of it. And he, he manages to bring back the, the 10th planet Cybermen and make them really scary again. How on earth do you do that? They looked so hokey when they first came about. Mm. But at least people now do have that kind of origin-esque story going on. Um, we've We've got something. So now that's in place, you know, the next person who's going to take it on Chris Chibnall should be looking at that and going right what can I build from that maybe I can take the, the second part of that story forward before you know mm. Mondas comes into uh, 1986 or whatever no 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 you should forget that story well whatever you should I mean, take, it, that, take the take the concept, the concept that's that it's actually about the people changing yeah. rather than what the people have changed into exactly I mean again with the Weeping Angels you only need a really good story with people I don't know, desperate on a planet or a poor community and they are absolutely obsessed with trying to keep themselves alive. And the only way of doing it is, say, a Cyberman turning up and going, hey, I'm like a preacher almost, I can save you. You know, that sort of thing would be interesting. If you've got good character um, and, and using that concept to feed those characters somehow and make it interesting, that mm. would work. But mm. um, no, if they come back as robots again... Again, going back to the whole Star Trek parallel, you know, the whole thing, the Borg came on, who are basically the Cybermen, aren't they? But they've, mm. they've made the threat, is the fact that these creatures adapt incredibly quickly. So Nightmare and Silver yeah. touched on that very briefly and then had to backtrack from it, you know, gave, this, gave them this incredible speed. And then you're thinking, well, why aren't they all walking around in incredible speed now? Because that obviously works. Why do they get stuck at this bit of water? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It was a crazy story. Mm. That Borg one where Picard gets turned into a Borg. Yeah, that was nasty. See, that actually played with you. That Again, that is the whole idea of this person suddenly not being the person they were. And I find that quite... And that I was great. Quite disturbing. In a way, that was great because all the way through the series after that and some of the films, mm. he would have nightmares about it. It, mm. would, it would come back to him and that was a good touch. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas Matt Smith didn't. He just kind of went, oh, I've been there now, I've done that. It'd yeah, well, they, it he touched on us. What, what He said, what if I regenerate? Let's see what happens. Yeah. Well, I love to see what happens. <laughs> I love that. That was my favourite bit in that episode. Yes, but Matt Smith talking to himself for 15 minutes without stopping wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we talk about who came in number one then? Well, and obviously it's the Daleks. <sighs> Daleks. Not the Taran Wood Beast then. <laughs> They are the most one-dimensional <laughs> creation in all of Doctor Who history, really, aren't they, the Daleks? Yeah. Except it's except there in the very first story with the monster in it, really, they have put everything that there would ever be about monsters in Doctor Who all into the same creature. They did. This is why there's never been a monster that's come along since that has ever really threatened to unseat them from that top spot because everything falls in the shadows <laughs> of the fact that they did it so perfectly the first time around. Mm -hmm. They're one-dimensional. There's no 
hint in 55 years of Dalek stories or whatever it is now. There's no hint that there's any kind of a proper society there. You'd occasionally think, see things like the Dalek Parliament that Stephen mm. Moffat did, but there's no... But even that didn't feel right. There's, there's, there's never... I don't know, I, I thought I liked the way they did that. Mm. But then you think to yourself, right, so after the Dalek Parliament's over, what do they do? Go and watch telly or something. Because exactly. there are thousands and thousands and millions of Daleks. Mm. What do they do? <laughs> Strictly come dancing. Well, they've all got attention deficit, haven't they? I mean, that's, that's the thing. Is that it's like, you know... We've, well, that's it. We've just killed someone. Bored now. <laughs> let's go and find someone else to kill. All right, let's kill him. Right, let's kill him. You know, it's just like, <laughs> you know, that's the joke, isn't it? It's almost like, let's yeah. just keep killing because we're really... I mean, the whole thing with the modern Daleks is the idea that they're relentless. That's the thing that's so... Yeah. You know, when yeah, they suddenly turned up in this stolen earth, you know. Mm. But that's what makes them such a perfect concept for a television programme, especially seen as back in 1963 when it first turned up, it was a much simpler television programme, is that you boiled it down, right down to the absolute bare necessities of what motivates this creature. Mm. What, how, what is this creature's behaviour like? And the motivation and behaviour, and of course it goes without saying, that design. You stick those three things together and it's just everything that comes afterwards, give it as much motivation, mm. give it as many behavioural idiosyncrasies as you like. But the Daleks have already done everything that needs to be done. They're the perfect Doctor Who monster. There was a really uh, horrible moment, wasn't there, when there was a family that goes back into the house and go, get away, and he throws a brick at the Dalek or whatever. And he in the stone house. house. Yeah. And in my youth, I used to think, oh, I'll be all right, I just run up the stairs and they can never get me. And then it occurred to me when I was about 13, 14, I think, if they're that powerful, they could really just take down my house. So actually, it wasn't a place to that was safe. I wasn't. I wouldn't be safe anywhere. No. And that never happened in Doctor ever until that episode, and it really hit me. And I thought, yes, that's that's right. Sod the stairs; they'll just blast the entire house away. Yeah. So it's it, they are that powerful, and like you said, they're relentless, and that that works. It works better, weirdly, than the Cybermen being a bit relentless with their ways. But why? Is it just because they're a solid war machine, like a tank that's just going to attack, 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 and you can't do anything about it? I don't know, with the Cybermen, there's always this thing, they'll come and get you. With the Daleks, there's more this thing, they can't even be bothered to come and get you, they'll just, they'll just blow it up. Yeah. Like you said, with the house, or if, you know, going right back to the start, with um, the Thals in the very first story, they couldn't be bothered to go and find the Thals, they were just going to blow the planet up again. Mm. And you see it throughout, they're just, you know, Dalek master plan, they're talking about Mm. blowing up planets. That's what they do. They don't fight you. They just blow up the planet. And there's and there's no logic and no reason. That's the frightening thing about it. And that's what I, I really liked about Davros in Stolen Earth. A lot of people didn't like it when he had the reality bomb. And he's going completely mad with it. You know, release the reality bomb. Let's destroy everything ever. Well, that's you his know. virus from Genesis, isn't it? <laughs> but yeah. And and it's he becomes his, his creations. Utterly devoid of any sense and logic. Um, great, great part. And actually, you know, you could say that the Daleks is kind of a mirror of what's going on at the moment, you know. Like the uh, kind of right-wing... Yeah, it's time, stuff. isn't it? It's time for another political Dalek story. I think so. I think so. 
Um, <clears throat> so there we go. That's our top ten. And the Daleks, of course, have won it. I would say not that there was any question, but there's always a question with these things. I mean, Weeping yeah. Angels won one of these polls in the Radio Times a few years ago. Uh, yeah, they? that's right. And then, like I say, the Cybermen came mighty close this time, and I wonder if a lot of that wasn't off the back of the two-parter. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. Um, I have a few other things to bring up. I've got a couple of reviews to do. I'll do them quickly, and then I've got a bit of a subject for us all to talk about, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, Big Finish have just re- released Hamlet. Have they? Yes, they're starting to do Shakespeare's. They started with the big one. Great. You, you must know Hamlet. What? Yes, I know Hamlet, yes. Uh, well, it's, it's my... great. Uh, it's the best play ever written, isn't it? Uh, Macbeth was better, yes. No, I'm sorry, but... <laughs> Are we going <laughs> to go outside and do get out over this? Off for a tempest. <laughs> um, Hamlet is um, Game of Thrones, isn't it? Without the dragons. Practically, an element of yeah, it's all in there. (laughs) What I'm saying is, stories like Game of Thrones take a lot of inspiration from the shenanigans of things like Hamlet. Mm -hmm. Hamlet is sort of well, it's not where it all came from, but it defines it and um, delineates it so well that it becomes a template. For anybody who doesn't know the story of Hamlet, Hamlet is the prince of Denmark. His father has been murdered by his father's brother. So the... Spoilers. <laughs> well, this isn't the opening scene, though, Lee. You can't really get very far into Hamlet at all without finding this out. When does he make his cigars, then? Oh, it's going to be like this, <laughs> is it? <laughs> you think, oh, Lee's doing it. I've got to do it too, do no, you? No, no, no. Um, in a way, it's a play about indecisiveness. Hamlet finds out at the start that his father was murdered by his uncle and he vows revenge and then spends five hours <laughs> waiting to take that revenge while, while he dithers about whether it's the right thing to do or not. Mm. And it's brilliantly done. I don't think it really is a play about indecisiveness so much as it's... Uh, play about characters thinking about mortality. Because mm-hmm. I don't think... Because this is the famous thing about Hamlet. Oh, he finds out at the start and he vows to take his revenge and then he doesn't do it until the end of Act 5. But that's not strictly true because he doesn't really get many opportunities, only really one opportunity to do it. But that was never the thing for Shakespeare. It was always the journey towards that. And, yeah, uh, you it's know, about the conversation cool. about death. Yeah, and human mortality, like you say. I mean, the, one of the big speeches in Hamlet that people always take the piss out of is Alas, Poor Yorick. But Alas, Poor Yorick is a lovely, sad and haunting bit of dialogue, monologue, whatever, yeah. about somebody who's died when... The lead character was a child and who he's not thought about for 25 years, yeah. or however old he is, however old you play it. He's not thought about this person for 25 years and then suddenly realises, oh, that person I used to see all the time when I was a kid, who I've not thought about since I was a kid, is dead. Yeah. He used to be alive and is no longer alive. And he was the fool, wasn't he? Yeah. But so this is the point that, of the all play. All that comedy, all that warmth and love, it are gone. The point of the play is, it's about 
the difference between being alive and no longer being alive. And that's what Shakespeare talks about throughout it. He doesn't talk about, oh, should I do this or should I not do this? He talks about if you take somebody's life, then, you know, there's no... It's a very um, secular play. Mm. It's not characters going off to heaven. It's you put a sword through somebody's gut, you've killed them, that's the end of a life. Yeah, but you do have the old ghost thing, don't you? That, at the beginning of the play. Well, you have the ghost, but the ghost is never presented as somebody... Um, no. Uh, somebody sent from heaven to make sure wrongs are righted. No, no, that's right. The the ghost is um, really the ghost is just there to facilitate the plot. So you've uh, this this is going towards the fact that you've listened to it. Oh yeah, I've listened to it. They do it for audio, which is totally different from doing it on stage. Mm. On stage, it's all about projection. On audio, it's completely the opposite thing. And um, most of the actors in it. I think all of them tried to, but some of them more successfully than others try and play it quite naturally and quite intimate. Yeah. And they mostly do it really well. And actually, I think it works even better than that. Better like that because of the subject of the play. Mm. So actually, I think this version of Hamlet on audio works better mostly than when you see it in a theatre. Yeah. Yeah. So it's heartily recommended. Mm. Do, Do we know who's kind of taken Hamlet? Who's the main actor? Alexander Vlahos. Yeah, but he's on Big Finish. He's been, um, he's a TV actor. He's a fairly well known TV actor. His name was in the frame fairly seriously for Doctor Who when Jodie Whittaker got it. Mm-hmm. Um, but he does stuff for Big Finish because it only takes a weekend. He mm-hmm. was their, um, Dorian Gray. Oh, yeah. Mm, he's very yeah. good. So is the take on it fairly authentic? Their Hamlet. Mm. Well, it's a straight reading. Straight reading, right. Okay. Yeah, they've not done anything with it. That's a straight reading, mm-hmm. but um, just on audio instead of on stage, and it works really well. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this is an interesting one. I had a review film called The Evil Within, which if you just look at the box, you just think, oh, that's some kind of generic horror movie. Right. Andrew Getty was the oil heir to the millions and millions of pounds that his grandfather had made. And... So him being a, I don't know, the rich kid, he, he goes off and forms his own business, which doesn't work. So he forms another business and all this kind of stuff. He's obviously got psychiatric problems. So he has, as far as I can gather, his entire life been suffering from really shockingly bad nightmares, really hideous, horrible stuff. So he decides, apparently with... No, a forethought to actually going off to university to learn about this stuff. He decides he's going to write and direct a film where he's just going to put his nightmares on the screen <laughs> in the form of a story. <laughs> and so, because he's got the money to do it, it's filled with professional actors. He's had help <coughs> with the script and everything else. He's got a proper producer in. He's actually gone out and properly made a film. And so, here you have a horror film that instead of a budget of about $100,000 that was filmed over the course of a weekend. It has a budget of four or five million dollars, was filmed over the course of five years, and then had, God, then had about eight or nine years worth of post-production put in for the special effects. (laughs) It's a horror film, the likes of which you've never seen. 
and mostly it really, really works. I gotta say, you can tell it's the work of an amateur in that some of the performances, although they were filmed over five years, so it's totally forgivable. Because mm. I mean, this was just filmed as and when he could, I suppose. Some of the performances are a little bit um, inconsistent, and some of the plot lines, you kind of sit there afterwards and you think, well, I'm not really sure how that was supposed to add up. But then when you realise that actually it's this guy's dreams that he's just put up on screen, you think, well, it's not really supposed to add up, is it? Mm. There's a scene in the start he's putting as a prologue that explains it, and the prologue kind of gives him leeway to do whatever he likes in the rest of the film and get away with it, because the whole thing... Not to put too fine a bone on it, and it's not quite this, but the whole thing might be a dream, so who knows? So it's... Sounds great. Oh, it was. I give it a seven, because it's not without its problems. But, yeah, I... You, when you look at the production... You've got to you've got to go on Wikipedia and read this, because I can't repeat the whole thing, but it's just an insane story about that. He, he died before he finished it. He died, like, two years or so ago. They've had to put it out after he's dead. <laughs> after sort of finishing the editing in that for him. Um, the Evil Within, it's called, is it? The Evil Within, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely well worth seeking out. If you like horror films, or even if you just like films that have an interesting history, this fulfills both those criteria. Mm. Um, right, we don't normally do news on this podcast, and by the time this episode comes out on our feed, we'll who knows? <laughs> Well, by the time this episode comes out in our feed, this might either have been disproved or else it might have been confirmed. But I don't think we can really go without commenting, even though everybody else has already done it, on whether Bradley Walsh is going to be the Doctor Who's companion for the next series. Mm. So when that rumour came out, what did anybody think? I got it wrong. (laughs) What do you mean you got it wrong? I, I thought it, when I when I saw the word Bradley Walsh in my head, Shane Ritchie popped in my head, and I think I instantly went, "Oh no, I can't bear that guy." Because yeah, I think he was in the running for being the. It's one of these ridiculous. It's one of the ones whose name came, came out about, in the early yeah. 90s. And I thought, "Oh no, really?" And then I brought up Brad, Bradley Walsh's picture. Lindsley went back on Facebook and said, "No, no, I made a mistake. This guy's actually okay. I, I really like him as." Um, as a panel, uh, what, what, what is he like? A show game host, show game show host. Yeah. He's, I've seen his bloopers and things like. That. He's a naturally funny guy, and Very I do. Warm. He's warm and he's human, and I like him. Fantastic the fans, yeah. He's but I like that as an actor, actor as well. Yeah, this is he's very thing. natural as an actor. So it's quite a dry a... performance when he does Law and Order. It's quite a dry performance, isn't it? It's very underplayed. I've not seen a lot of Law and Order. I've seen a bit, mm. but is he going to be like a? Do you think he's going to be? Yeah, more he like does. A... He underplays everything, doesn't he? More like a Bernard Cribbins when he gets in there, though, with a bit of comedy and a bit of weight. <laughs> Lee, we don't even know if he's doing it at all. No, well, I'm we're just, talking I'm about speculation, like we all are. Imagine if he's... I think it'd be great against her, though. That'd be great. And also, is he the companion? He could be like an ongoing, as you say, like a... Regular, recurring Mm. guest. Yeah, Mm. maybe. I hope hope they do that. That'd be a great idea. That would work, I think. No, I'd really like him to be the main companion. Yeah. One Mm. of two, perhaps. Mm. Him and somebody younger, so that there's a real triangle split of Mm. ages and everything. Mm. Yeah, but I... You know, um... One thing I was reminded of was in Mummy and the Orient Express, when the Doctor says to Frank Skinner at the end, come and join us full time, and Frank Skinner's character says, nah, mate. <laughs> and a lot of people said afterwards, oh, 
Oh, I wish I could have seen that. Mm, mm. And I don't know whether there's just a little bit of a hint of that going on here. Mm. That he's there. Maybe he'll be a recurring character and he'll mm. turn up and you'll think, oh God, why can't he be in it every week? Mm. But then maybe we will get him every week. So Yeah. Maybe it's probably lovely to get an older character kind of getting in those situations, going off to alien planets and then mm. having to having to cope with it. You know. It's sort of if it is him and he's the regular, yeah. and they do do it in the sort of normal style of a different story every week in a different place every week, that's kind of Evelyn Smythe off the yeah. audios. Yeah, yeah. It's mm. something that we've never had. Mm. We didn't get it with Wilf, because when he did his companion slot in the end of time, mm. it was basically on Earth. Did a little bit on a spaceship, but you yeah, know what? it was made a liability as well. It'd be and nice to get away yeah. from that, wouldn't it? And he didn't get to have any actual adventures. No. So to have a youngish woman doctor mm. with, I mean, she's in her mid thirties. So get somebody who's in their early twenties and get somebody who's in his mid to late fifties. And my God, what an interesting could be thing him and his son. Be a right old family, wouldn't it? Or even him and his daughter. Yeah, I mean that would be good, wouldn't it? I think that would be that'd really work, good. That would work really well. Yeah, I think Jodie Whittaker and a younger woman and an older man. If they got a companion, another companion, not connected and and still get that fatherly relationship going on. It wouldn't need to be his actual daughter for it to have that relationship. No, I think if they did actually get a daughter, I think he'd spend most of the time being so protective, you just kind of, it would really restrict the story. Wouldn't that be quite fun? But then, yeah, then you've got that pulling against the relationship with the doctor. So Mm. actually, you've got an interesting dynamic either way. And a very different one than we've ever had. Mm. Yeah. Thing is, people are speculating like crazy now about what Chris Chibnall's Doctor Who is going to be like. It's going to be all set on Earth. It's going to be just one story across the whole series. And various in, other things that people are just interestingly, saying. Interestingly, I was going back through a lot of the old um, writers panel podcasts and I found the Chris Chibnall one. It was just after Grace Point was premiering. And uh, he talked. He was talking about the difference between the, you know, he was saying about doing serialized, and he was say, he was actually sort of giving a really positive spin on the whole serialized one story over seven episodes type thing. Broadchurch is the only time he's ever done it though, mm. as far as I'm aware. I don't think he's ever done it before. He's done obviously one-off things like United mm. and like um, the Great Train Robbery. Mm. Well, that was two episodes connected, but. Broadchurch is the only time he's done a serial. Everything else he's done, Born and Bred, Torchwood, mm. um, Camelot, insofar as I'm aware, have all been series. Yeah, mm. I think he was just talking about the things you can do with a serial as opposed to this. Yeah, but this is the point. He was given an interview for Grace Point. Yeah. So that was what was at the forefront of his mind, and that was what he'd just done. I wasn't assuming anything. I was just saying, I'm just saying that he does well, give a very positive Yeah, but I'm about to make a that. point about that. Okay. There was an interview with the Royal Television Society in which Chris Chibnall said, I went to the BBC with an idea expecting them to debate it with me and they just said yes to it straight away. And the interviewer, who was Mark Lawson, said, oh, I wonder if that idea was the idea of Doctor Who being a serial rather than a series of distinct stories. And also in that interview, he talks about various other things as well. And all of these things now have been speculated as being being on the table as to how Chris Chibnall will treat Doctor Who. Except when Jodie Whittaker was announced, he revealed that the idea he went to the BBC with was to have a woman doctor. Mm. 
which insofar as I'm concerned, takes all these other things off the table again. Not entirely, no. because who knows? You could do anything with it. At the end of the day, an arc, but, is an arc, an arc turns the whole thing into a serial anyway, if you think about it. It just depends to sort what degree that does. Yeah, yeah. But what I mean is, people are still talking as if the idea he took to the BBC might have been to do it as a serial instead of a series. We know that wasn't the idea. Mm. And given that Mark Lawson speculates it in that interview, I'd say that makes it less likely. Mm. So, I don't know. It's possible Doctor Who will be a serial for 13 hours. Another one they've speculated is it'll be a serial of 10 episodes, each of 60 minutes duration. Well, BBC America and BBC Worldwide both have money in Doctor Who and they've got to broadcast it in 60 minutes slots with adverts. So that's not going to happen. No. That makes it impossible to sell around the world. It's going to stay at 45 minutes, surely. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you the one that I think might have legs. I think it might move to Sunday nights. Mm. Yeah, you said this before, didn't you? Have I said it on the podcast? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the yeah, one I, I think's think so. got legs. Yeah. Sunday's got a stronger lineup, and it's the night of the week now when people do stay in and watch telly, mm. whereas Saturday night they don't. Saturday night during Series 10, Doctor Who was getting 3.75, and everyone was saying it was a disaster. Program that was winning the night was getting 4.05 or something. Yeah, exactly. You know, Doctor Who was just a fraction behind the most watched program of the day. And yeah, on Sundays, I think I think if Doctor Who moved to Sundays, you'd add another million on without even the consideration that there's now a woman in the uh, eponymous role. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, Bradley Walsh, I think he'd be great. Mm, mm. I think... Because he always underplays and he's very natural. Jodie Whittaker, she doesn't underplay, but she does that natural thing. And um, one of the things about Broadchurch was, in spite of there being some quite idiosyncratic performances, they're all given by actors who have been very natural doing it. Mm. I just wonder if Doctor Who might be slightly more low-key under Chris Chibnall. Because under RT, RTD, it was very, um, not campy, but it was quite in your face. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, it has been. It has been for quite a few years until Peter Capaldi's last season, I think. I it doesn't, no, it hasn't I felt quite the same. Yeah, there was something about it that just felt... Well, like no, RTD's different. was kind of cartoony. Stephen Moffat's yeah. was... Um, I don't know what word you'd use to describe it. Moffaty. <laughs> well, no, it kind of had a sort of dream logic-y thing about it. Yeah, yeah. Which meant it wasn't in your face. It was slightly weird. Mm. So I think if RTDs was cartoony and Stephen Moffat's was slightly weird, I think Chris Chibnall's will be more low-key natural. But it will be emotion, emotion, emotion. That's how he, how he's talking in this interview. That is what drives him. And that's what he feels works as far as getting a mainstream audience. And that's his target. Good. His target audience, not listening to fans at all. Yeah. He was saying there's very little point in any kind of fan service, really. Or certainly not to get caught up with that, you know, mm. to, to let that be a, a direction. It should never be a direction. You can it should not be the it. defining factor. Yeah, exactly. Right. Interesting, though. Interesting, interesting times, though. Mm. The other thing that happened a couple of weeks ago, as you'll be hearing this, was... Um, Doctor Who magazine came out and they said what actor was going to be playing Ben in the Christmas special. Mm. And 
You don't even know about this, Lee. I do now. <laughs> oh, you twit. <laughs> but you knew Polly was going to be in it, right? Um, yes, right. I saw a very small clip. Mm. Right, and you know the first Doctor's in it, right? Yeah. Well, so they said he was going to be playing Ben. And actually, he's a really good actor. But a lot of people seem to sort of say, a lot of fans seem to sort of say, oh, well, that's it then. I, I really don't like that idea. Even though they knew Polly had been recast and the Doctor had been recast, for some reason, recasting Ben was the final straw. But, I mean, given that the Doctor and Polly were going to be in it... But, I mean, they we, we don't have... even know what how big their parts are. It could be a tiny amount, couldn't it? I mean, yeah, they get... Chances are it would probably be a flashback to something that's happening in the episode, and yeah, instead of having to show it? a black-and-white clip in 4 by 3 with two actors who aren't in the special, or, you know, with a, an actor yeah. playing the Doctor who's yeah. different from the one in the special, they just recreate it or something. could be that. Yeah. And, you know, that could be all there is to it. I just find it fascinating that, you know, this it just doesn't take a huge leap of imagination to think, well, we're, these are characters we're watching. These these are their stories. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So I, I love the idea of going back and, and recasting characters because that's what they are. You know, we've got the Doctor on audio again. Yeah. In a weird way. Have you heard them? With Trim, Tim Trelaw. It's uncanny. It's really <laughs> weird. It does feel like you're, he's there. Um, yeah. You know, once you get past the first 10, 15 minutes of listening to the voice and thinking this is someone else, mm. you're in with it because Katie Manning's on board and all that. And it, it works, actually. I think mm. it's really, really good. And Peter Purvis does the same with the first Doctor and Fraser Hines with the second Doctor. And Fraser Hines brilliant with the second Doctor's mm-hmm. voice, yeah. Oh, so, Peter Purvis is with the first, yeah. Yes, he is, actually, yeah. yeah. Um, so it doesn't take, like you say, that much of a leap of imagination just to go, all right, they're going to recast. I mean, Richard Handel was, wasn't... Our first Doctor, was he? But everybody's accepted they're not that. Looking, they're not looking to wipe away what's been done before. No, just just that those ga- actors played those characters for that period of time. And oh, then... that's the thing that really winds me up. Oh, they've destroyed something. You know, and I'm not talking about Doctor Who now. I'm talking about, oh, if they remake X film, they're destroying it. No, you can still watch the original when mm. nothing about the original's changed. But the fact is, you can't... <laughs> You know, in the same way as at the cinema, you can't make 15-year-old kids go out and watch a black-and-white film that was made, you know, three and a half lifetimes ago, as far as they're concerned. They're just not going to be interested. So if you want them to be interested in that story, tell it afresh. Mm. In the same way, one of the things people have been saying about this is, why couldn't they have used one of the doctors who's alive? Say David Tennant. He didn't want to go. Why not tell a story where Peter Capaldi meets up with David Tennant? I'm like, no, the story here isn't that the doctor doesn't want to go. The story here is that Peter Capaldi's doctor is meeting the doctor who never has gone, mm. who doesn't know what's mm. going to happen, mm. who's never been through the experience. The whole idea of this is that it has to be the first one. It can't mm. be any of the other Doctors. And the fact that they made an adventure in space and time and actually cast somebody mm. who I don't think does a very good impersonation, for want of a better word, of William Hartnell. But like you say, as a character, 
if you don't think of him as, oh, this is William Hartnell, but if you think of him instead as, oh, this mm. is the first Doctor, and if he's close enough, then you just accept it as a dramatic performance from an actor doing a reading of a part written on a page. Mm. Mm. But I thought he did well in just that little clip alone, and he's obviously been working hard to get it right, because he knows how important it is to try and do his best at getting it right. But he also said in an interview, you know, it will be my take on this character. Mm. But from the clip I saw, it looked like he worked really hard to try and nail it, actually. And it, uh, you know, I'm on board with this straight away. I can't mm. wait. When we first saw him, didn't we? We all said, God, wouldn't it be great coming back as <laughs> as the first Doctor? Um, and there he is, doing it. Just can't wait. Well, there's, no reason to, there's no reason to recast the second or third Doctor. Like you say, the point is, it's the first Doctor. Mm. There's a lot the of The original. Talk. Yeah, yeah. But there's no need to go back and recast three, four, five. They're not going to do that. No. What would be, what would be the point? But there, there, there is a point to this. Yeah, because it's a story. Exactly. There's a story point here that is absolutely overriding everything else. Mm. And as it transpires, this episode was an extra one that Stephen Moffat agreed to do after he'd agreed to finish at the end of episode 12 of (laughs) series 10. Okay. So he gets to the end. So it didn't quite work out like this, but essentially the way it goes is he gets to the episode of 10, gets to Peter Capaldi's regeneration, and then finds he's got another 60 minutes to fill. So what are you going to do but a story like this? It's the, I don't know. If if this is the story of the first Doctor of a new regeneration cycle, saying I've had enough of regenerating, meeting up with the very first Doctor who's never even regenerated once, and then both learning something off each other, that seems to me like the perfect story oh, to tell in that situation. Amazing thousands, of, thousands of years of life that a Doctor's had, he's not going to remember either is he exactly his emotions all those years ago so what better way to kind of go back and and, and get in touch with you know mm. his original person than go yeah i think i think it's gonna it's gonna be fascinating i can't wait <laughs> what an idea what an idea and actually it works doesn't it because we now know that when they meet each other and then disappear they forget that they've met each other because of the time mm. thing yeah oh the, the latest is, one i remember is that right Oh, the latest one remembers. Yeah, that's no, right. no, no. That's no. the latest one can't remember because otherwise he'd know what to do, what he did, wouldn't he? No, the the earlier one. That's what you mean. Oh, yeah, the earlier one can't remember. The earlier the one, one forgets. One, yeah, which means that the latest one doesn't remember because the earlier one forgets. Well, how can? Okay, yeah. sorry, I'm being a bit thick. In the day of the doctor, the eleventh doctor obviously remembers that he's that Gallifrey is hidden. It wasn't destroyed. No, because he hides it. He's the one who hides it. Right, okay. But he remembers meeting all his other previous selves, doesn't he? No. He goes and he goes to meet them. Mm. He doesn't remember meeting them. But then he wouldn't remember that Gallifrey was hidden then. He doesn't remember that Gallifrey is hidden. He's the one who hides it. No, the eleventh doctor. Yes. In Day of the Doctor. Yes, the most recent incarnation. Yes, he's there. They all hide it together, don't they? They all hide it together, yeah. But yeah. surely he's the one who remembers because from that no, point because... on he knows that it's somewhere else. No, because Clara tells him, instead of blowing it up, why don't you do something else? And he says, oh, we should hide it. Right. So he doesn't remember hiding it. He's the one who comes up with the idea to hide it. Oh, no, I know, I know that. But I'm just saying, once the episode ends... It's like John Hurt goes back into his TARDIS, doesn't he? And oh, says, he oh, remembers that. I don't remember any of this. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So Peter Capaldi's Doctor will remember. Peter Capaldi's Doctor will remember the events of Twice Upon a Time. Yes. But David Bradley's won't. Right, right, right. right. 
<laughs> it's very late. Yes, but he won't remember the first time round. No, no, absolutely not. He'll just not. remember what has happened yeah. in the present day, yeah. Which is, as why I love Doctor Who, it's a brilliant idea, isn't it? <laughs> he can meet himself forever now, and uh, what a great idea. Right, until next week. Oh, then, I think I'll just say one more thing. Oh, yes, of course, you think. Yes. Um, we have a friend called Timo Peach, mm. who... Uh, is it did, Timo? It should be Timo, sure. Timo, yeah. Tim, Timo, Timo, Momo, whatever. Yeah. Uh, he did the soundtrack to the Seasons of War short film that Andy Robinson made. And he did one of the versions of the theme for this podcast as well. Mm. Yes, and he does lots of his own music and brilliant kind of pop-esque, kind of yellow Thomas Dolby type uh, electronic Synth-poppy, stuff, yeah. which we absolutely love. Um, but also he's a bit of a thinker and he has... Uh, a new project on the way. Can't say any more about it at this stage, but you can imagine it'll be musically based at some point. But as part of that, a bigger part of the project is to do with looking at science fiction and how it affects us as people and as humans and human development and things like that. So it's a bit of fun. He's he's set up a hashtag called hashtag MyFi, so M-Y-F-I. And um, he's put a call to people just to give the little anecdotes and little uh, just reasons um, as to what and how science fiction may have shaped you. It's a bit strange asking Dot Two fans because obviously there's the whole thing. I don't want anyone because that happened on Facebook didn't it, where people started discussing what science fiction was and whether Dot Two was science fiction, which wasn't the question. The question is how has it affected you? So as Dot Two fans, obviously you will probably into some kind of science fiction yeah and you'll have some story about why you have become a Doctor Who fan it may not be because of Doctor Who it might be because of something else that led you to it Mm. but you know we've been talking about all kinds of things you know the next thing I'm going to be putting up is about the planetarium in London Mm. and how that really got me into certain things as well and Tangerine Dream the band and all these you know so that it can be about anything Touching science fiction. I mean, books, he's, fiction, he's put the question music. out to a few people. He's put it out to actors and to musicians and yeah, to yeah. scientists, everyone really. Yeah. And we're getting, you know, there's a few answers coming back about how it's took people into their certain careers yeah. just from reading science fiction when they were kids. Um, so you can go on to, is on Facebook, if you go onto his Facebook page with facebook.com forward slash Momo Tempo, or you can find him on Twitter. And there's also on Instagram, but the main thing is to put the hashtag in of hashtag MyFi, M-Y-F-I. And just give like a hundred, your 140 character Twitter thing if you think fits into that. Yeah. Or find his page on Facebook and, and put it on there. And the, 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 there's a project behind it that is mapped out, but it's also very improvisational as well. Hmm. So certain things that people come up with or say uh, may link to something else that links to something else that turns into a separate project on its own. Hmm. So... Um, there's team, always the chance that yeah. you actually get quoted at some stage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's going to be fascinating, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, before we go, leave us a review on iTunes. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, go on. And then. email us at blueboxpodcast at yahoo.co.uk. <laughs> and join our Facebook page. Keep going. Numbers, numbers, numbers. Have numbers. we got a Twitter hashtag as well? Or Twitter handle? Yeah, we no, but we're all on Twitter, aren't we? JR Southall underscore... No. <laughs> <laughs> JR underscore Southall. That's the main one. There you go. It's me and I'm the one who... What are you, Simon? I'm just things. Simon Brett. Well, not, the, not the 
crime writer. No, I got it before he did. He's not on Twitter, <laughs> actually. <laughs> nice. Well, I'm Montag Fire, which makes no sense. Is there a reason for that? It's because way back when we started to play with Twitter and all that sort of stuff and get on the internet, I didn't really want my name everywhere. So I decided to use a pseudonym, and that was a combination of two words, Montag and Fire, which comes from the book Fahrenheit 451, which is one of my favourite books. Of course. There we go. Right, until next week then, I was JR. I was Simon. I am still Lee. Oh, you're Montag Fire. (laughs) (laughs) Should we do it again? Until next week, I was JR. I was Simon. I was Montag Fire. (laughs) And we don't do Reddits. (laughs) But we will speak again soon.